0: Straight out of Scotland, this is the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. I am your host, Dr. R.T. Mullins from the University of St. Andrews. In today's episode, I sit down with Stephen Namesh to discuss something called the modal collapse argument against divine simplicity. The modal collapse argument has been defended by myself and many other philosophers over the years. It is an argument that some people love and that other people love to hate. In today's episode, I asked Stephen to explain how he understands the modal collapse argument and why it is such a serious problem for the doctrine of divine simplicity. After that, we chat about his strategies for avoiding the modal collapse. If you have questions or topics that you would like to hear on the show, you can send me a message at rtmullins.com. Well, ready or not, hear the theological musings of Stephen Demesh. Enjoy. So Steve, you've been thinking about divine simplicity quite a bit lately. So you're committed to affirming this doctrine and you're part of a growing number of younger theologians who really do want to defend this doctrine by actually developing real responses instead of just kind of always playing the the mystery card. You know, you, you might want to say there's mystery somewhere, but we still have to have like meaningful responses to these arguments. So what I want to do is I want to look at what's called the modal collapse argument against divine simplicity. So why don't you just start by telling me what is the modal collapse argument? Like, how does that argument go?
1: Yeah, okay, so the modal collapse argument tries to prove that if you admit the doctrine of divine simplicity, there is no room for real contingency in the world. All facts become necessary, because all facts somehow flow out of God's absolutely simple, utterly immutable, absolutely necessary nature. Mm -hmm. And so... There are a lot of different ways that you can put the modal collapse argument. I seem to remember in your article in the Journal of Reformed Theology that you have two versions. Mm. One of them is like this potentiality argument that, okay, so God creates the world, right? God has a concrete effect. Now, if that concrete effect exists only contingently, that means that God could have not created it. Right. And if God could not have created it or could have not created it, then that means that there must be some sort of unactualized potentiality in God a potentiality mm-hmm. not to create, or in that world where he doesn't create a, an, an actualized potentiality to create. But of course, if the doctrine of divine simplicity is true, then God doesn't have any potentialities. So right. that it would seem that, you know, the doctrine of divine simplicity entails there's only one possible world, so to speak. There's only one mm-hmm. possible state of things that is necessary. That's one version of the argument. Another version of the argument says that if, according to divine simplicity, God is identical to his act, right? Like we were mm-hmm. talking about in the previous episodes, And, well, God creates the world in virtue of an act of creation. Uh, So that means that God is identical to that act of creation. And if God is identical to the act of creation, of course, identity is a necessary uh, relation. Uh, so mm. that means that in every possible world, God is identical to this act of creation. And that would seem to entail mm. that in every possible world, this creation exists. And so really, there's only one possible world, namely this one. Right. Uh, so that's another another way of getting the conclusion of modal collapse from the doctrine of divine simplicity. It, uh, ba- basically, what's, going, what's happening in both of these arguments is that the causal relation between God and the world is purportedly infected by the kind of necessity that exists within God's own nature because of his simplicity. The the necessity of God's own nature transfers into that causal relation and then infects the world and makes the world to be necessary rather than contingent. Mm -hmm.
0: Right. Okay. So I guess, well, what's so bad about this modal collapse though? Like why is that a problem for theology?
1: There are a lot of ways it could be problematic for theology. One way that you identified in your Theopolis essay, for example, is that it turns God's grace into a necessary act. Mm-hmm. So there's no there's no possible world where God doesn't give grace to whatever human being actually receives grace. Right. So there's a kind of a necessity about divine grace. Right. Typically, Christians want to say that God could have abstained from giving grace. But if there is no possible world where he abstains from giving grace, then he could not have abstained, he could not have abstained from giving grace, and so therefore grace is necessary. I mean, there's just a lot of bad things about modal collapse. I have some Facebook friends who... For God only knows what reason, are actually kind of sympathetic <laughs> to modal collapse, but I think that they're crazy. Sure. Right? I, like, modal collapse means that I have no freedom. There is no possible world where I don't do all the stupid things I've ever done in my life. Right, yeah. Right? That's, a perf- that's a perfectly fine excuse for me because when I do something stupid, people can't get upset. Well, psh- I'm sorry, you're shit out of luck. I mean, there's only one possible mm. world, and in this one, you happen to be the victim of my actions. Right. But you know, <laughs> yeah. that's, that would be very unfortunate if it were true. Right? There would be no freedom. I could only ever do what I actually do. Mm-hmm. And that means that all my mistakes are equally necessary. I could never have been better than I actually am. I could never also have been worse than I actually am. So there's at least that payoff.
0: Yeah, I guess that is slightly nice.
1: Yeah, there's there's some niceness. There's some nice parts and there's some bad parts about motor collapse. Yeah. Um, like all things. Uh, also, there's no contingency of creation. The world necessarily exists, right? So there's, there's no way that God could have created another world. There's no way that God could have abstained from creating the world. But typically... It, Throughout history and Christian theology, Christian theologians have held that the world exists contingently. They got created freely, but he didn't have to create mm-hmm. it. Um, he created it ex nihilo, right, at the beginning of time, and he didn't have to. So modal collapse really goes contrary to ethical intuitions about the, the importance and the, the nature of freedom and responsibility for actions. Mm-hmm. Um, it goes contrary to what Christian theologians have traditionally held about the contingency of creation. And it's, you know, it's just, it's just bad. It, it's just to be avoided at yeah. all costs.
0: Yeah, I just remembered like one other issue that, that I've seen a couple people come up with. I think this was uh, Laura Garcia brought this up. She says, with regards to theodicy... So a lot of times when we're trying to do theodicy, we'll try to make this distinction in God's actions. We'll say, God allows some things to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, he'll permit it to happen. So it would be some sort of thing. Like, God could have prevented some action from happening, some evil state of affairs from happening, but he permitted it because he had a good reason to permit it. But right. if there's a modal collapse, there's no... I mean, the, the idea of God permitting or allowing that goes away because there's no way God could have, could have intervened or could have not like permitted it from happening. And so all the evil that takes place, it has to happen. And that, it just, I, I start to lose my ability to even, I guess, develop a theodicy and that, that, that bothers me.
1: Yeah. I mean, if, if modal collapse is, is true, if, if, if actually there is only one possible world then it's the best of all possible worlds. So you could say that. I hope so. But then it's also mm-hmm. the worst of all possible worlds because there's nothing, you know... Because it's the only one. Yeah, it's <laughs> the only one.
0: Right, okay. All right, so okay. So we've got so we've got some sort of problem here with his modal collapse. So what, are, what do you think are some of the options for avoiding the modal collapse?
1: An obvious option is to just admit the uh, validity of the objection and to reject divine simplicity. Mm -hmm. But much unlike you and much like your um, dialogue partner, Edward Fazer, this is not actually, in my mind, Mm -hmm. a real option. I am fairly convinced of the arguments for divine simplicity, so I don't think that's the way to go personally.
0: Okay, good. Yeah. yeah.
1: Another way that you might try is to identify a fallacy in the argument. And this is actually what Christopher Tomaszewski does in his Mm -hmm. uh, paper in Analysis. So if you'd like, I'll I'll, uh, summarize his argument a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says that... At least one version of the modal collapse argument that you bring up in your Journal of Reform Theology paper is fallacious it commits a modal fallacy that Quine identified you know some decades ago so Christopher Tomaszewski summarizes the modal collapse argument in this way first premise necessarily God exists second premise God is identical to God's act of creation And so, conclusion, Mm -hmm. therefore, necessarily, God's act of creation exists, right? And if God's act of creation exists, then the creation exists, necessarily, and there's a modal collapse. So, that's how Christopher Tomaszewski summarizes the modal collapse argument. And he says that this is formally equivalent to a very clearly fallacious argument um, like this. Here's the example argument. Mm -hmm. Necessarily, 8 is greater than 7, First premise. Second premise. The number of planets is eight. Third, or conclusion, therefore necessarily the number of planets is greater than seven. Uh, So he says, obviously that argument is fallacious, right? It's true that eight is greater than seven, and it's true that the number of planets is eight, but it's not true that Mm -hmm. the number of planets, necessarily that the number of planets is greater than seven, because of course there could have been more planets, there could have been fewer, or excuse me, there could have been fewer planets, Yeah.
0: Or we could just say, you know what? I just want to get rid of more planets. Like we got rid of Pluto. Let's get rid of some more and get them exactly out.
1: right. I mean, these people yeah. at NASA, like they're so unpredictable. This could happen at any moment, right? So, uh, so this, you know, so he says this argument is about planets is clearly fallacious, mm-hmm. and so you know, because the modal collapse argument is similar, there's also a fallacy here, and so wh- where does the fallacy lie? The fallacy lies in the fact that the first premise has a, necess- a necessity operator. But the second premise does not have the same necessity operator. Ah, uh, right. Okay. And so there's, there's an inferred necessity that isn't grounded in both of the premises. Right? The first premise is necessarily eight is greater than seven. That's true. Mm-hmm. Second premise, the number of planets is eight. That's also true. The conclusion, therefore, necessarily the number of planets is greater than seven. See, that doesn't follow because there wasn't a necessity operator in the second premise. Right. It's only a contingent fact that the number of planets is eight. And so therefore, it's also only a contingent fact that the number of planets is greater than seven. And so he Mm -hmm. says, if you want to salvage the modal collapse argument against divine simplicity, you have to reformulate the second premise. So it becomes like this. First premise, necessarily God exists. Second premise, necessarily God is identical to God's act of creation. Right. And therefore the conclusion, therefore necessarily God's act of creation exists. But what Tomaszewski says is that this second premise begs the question against the proponent of divine simplicity, and that no, di- no proponent of divine simplicity actually is obligated to hold to that second premise. Uh, so if you'd like, mm-hmm. I, can, I can quote what he says here. Yeah, go for it. What follows from the doctrine of divine simplicity is the necessary identity of God with God's act. But that God's act is an act of creation is a contingent fact, not entailed by divine simplicity. Divine simplicity only tells us that God is necessarily identical with God's act. It does not tell Mm -hmm. us anything about what the effects of that act are. But calling God's act an act of creation, in quotes, does tell us something about what the effects of that act are, namely that it affects a creation. And so the doctrine of divine simplicity does not entail that God's act is an act of creation, and therefore it doesn't entail that God is necessarily identical to God's act of creation. So say okay, if, right, 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 uh, So his whole idea right. is God's act. God is identical to God's act necessarily, but God's act is only necess- is only contingently an act of God's cre- of creation, and so therefore God mm-hmm. is not necessarily identical to an act of creation. That's what Tomashevsky says. Right. Okay. Now I also understand that Tomashevsky has been. So this is in response to the f- the, actually in the, in your Journal of Reformed Theology paper. This is in response to the first formulation of the argument. Okay. Sure. From sure. From what sure. I understand from Facebook tomaszewski now is is presenting a paper that addresses the potentiality argument
0: right because that was the main one i was i was really focused on developing the moto collapse just kind of i just accidentally like developed it and i was like oh right there you go i guess this is the thing
1: yeah so from what i understand tomaszewski christopher is now presenting a paper at a conference somewhere or he recently did where he addresses Mm -hmm. the potentiality argument right that has more explicitly to do with causality divine causality things like that so that's in any case, that's one way that a person might respond to the modal collapse argument by identifying a purported modal fallacy.
0: Right. Okay. So the options here are just reject divine simplicity so you get out of it. But you don't want to do that. Nope. Uh, or you could say, well, hang on, Ryan, you've got, there's like, at least in some of these versions of the way it's developed, there's a very clear modal fallacy here. Mm-hmm. And so that'd be one way to say the argument just doesn't work at all. So yeah. I don't have to reject divine simplicity because this argument's just fallacious. No problem.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Yeah, so, so what sort of way would you want to respond to the modal collapse argument?
1: Yeah, I, I think that Christopher Tomaszewski's paper does really identify a modal fallacy in at least some formulations of the modal collapse argument. But it seems to me that the real essence of the problem has to do with divine causality. Mm, okay. And also divine language. So I would want to address not this identity of God's act and whatever. I would want to go straight for the jugular, so to speak. I would want to go for the potentiality mm-hmm. argument because that's the one that seems to me to be the most uh, devastating uh, form of the modal collapse objection. I'll tell you how I respond to it. Okay. My response to the to the modal collapse argument, which is going to be published in a, a short- you know, a little volume of philosophical studies, not the journal Philosophical Studies, but, you know, with lowercase mm-hmm. p and S, Philosophical Studies, sure. <laughs> um, uh, edited by a friend of mine in Romania, my response basically has two parts. On the one hand, I make a clarification about theological language describing divine action. And on the other hand, I identify a certain causal principle, a principle of causality that I think is implicit in the modal collapse argument uh, and that I think the proponent of divine simplicity has to deny if they're going to preserve okay. culturally contingency. So let's start with the theological language part. You say, for example, in your Theopolis essay, that all of God's acts are identical to one another, and so therefore there's only one right. divine act. That's, I think, your premise nine. Yes. I say that when we use language describing divine action... You know within the context of the doctrine of divine simplicity we can distinguish between two senses of every ascription of divine action okay okay what i call a causal sense and an effectual sense and let me as- describe what i mean mm-hmm. let's take your example god's act of giving grace according to the doctrine of divine simplicity there, we can distinguish two senses of this term in the causal sense god's act of giving grace can be understood to refer to that within god in virtue of which he produces his effect Okay. So it's just a reference to God himself, right? Right, right, right. And so in this sense, God is identical to God's act of giving grace because God gives grace in virtue of himself, according to divine simplicity. In the effectual sense, however, it refers not to God in himself. It refers to those concrete states of affairs that God affects when he gives Mm -hmm. grace. So the transformation of the life of Ryan or whatever, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Now, this is the important part. This is, uh, this is where I think uh, it's, it's important to be very precise about the nature of divine causality uh, on the doctrine of divine simplicity because according to the Devo- doctrine of divine simplicity, there's no mediation between God, substantially speaking, like understood as a, as, a, as a substance, if we can use that language, sure, and his effect. There is such mediation between me and my effect. So, for example, when I play the piano, mm-hmm. there's me, there's the effect of the piano being played, but there's also a mediating thing in virtue of which I produce my effect, namely all these accidental modifications of my body.
0: Right, right, right. You see what I'm yeah. saying? So it's, it's you know, yeah. the
1: position of my hands, the movement of my fingers, the placement on the keys, and so on. All these things sort of mediate between me as a substance and the effect of music being produced.
0: Right. When you're playing the piano, you're able to, pr- like, move your body through a direct action, but you're only able to move the keys on the piano through an indirect action, Uh, by in virtue of like moving your body parts and then you're able to move the keys right and then with God there's nothing like that
1: right with God there's no mediation between cause and effect God doesn't accomplish Mm -hmm. his effects in virtue of some accidental modification of his body or whatever because he has no body right and according to divine simplicity has no accidents at all exactly so the connection between God's effects is always direct it's always God on the one hand and the effect on the other there's just a direct production right yeah, And so that's why we can distinguish, when we talk about divine action, we can distinguish between the causal sense, which refers to God as a cause, mm-hmm. and the effectual sense, which refers to the effect, insofar as it's caused by God. Now, with this distinction in mind, we can then argue, I say, that there is actually a critical um, ambiguity or equivocation in your Theopolis essay. Mm-hmm. Namely that, depending on which sense of the phrase God's act of giving grace is meant... The proponent of divine simplicity can reject or accept the premise without trouble, right? Without any mm-hmm. uh, without any disastrous consequences for the doctrine. So, for instance, if you say that God is identical to God's act of grace understood causally, I agree with that. Right. But what I'm going to say is that that doesn't entail that God necessarily gives grace because for a reason that I'll explain a little later.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so hang on, I want to make sure I'm following here. So the so when I talk about God's acts, you're saying I can distinguish between acts in terms of just things that are internal to God and then the acts with regards to what the, the acts are actually bringing about?
1: No, I don't mean the acts. I mean this language, right? The, mm-hmm. the, this the
0: language of God acts. A divine and, action. The act right? of giving grace. As, as, mm-hmm.
1: a, as a linguistic item, a divine action, the act of giving grace. Okay. Right? That. That linguistic item, that syntagma or whatever, has two senses, or at least it can be understood okay. in two senses. And depending on mm-hmm. which sense is intended, the proponent of divine simplicity may agree or disagree with, with uh, one of your premises in your argument.
0: Right. Yeah, because the way I devel- developed the Theopolis one was to focus only on, I guess it would be this first sense, which is just everything that's internal to God. Because uh, the way I developed the Theopolis argument was I don't care what the effects would be. So it would only be at this first sense. And so you're saying you can accept that. But my Theopolis argument is not, doesn't get you a modal collapse, so so right. this wouldn't be a problem. I would, right. I would need extra premises to get the modal collapse argument, which, um, yeah. And so when you make this distinction between what God's acts mean, then it would help with Mm-hmm. whatever those extra premises are to get the modal collapse. Right. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah. So
1: let me let me tell okay. you what that extra premise is, as I understand mm-hmm. it. I think this is the extra premise that you need. You need to say that God produces his effects in virtue of his intrinsic reality, right? In mm-hmm. virtue of himself. And therefore, if his effect could have been otherwise, then he had to be able to be otherwise. Okay. Put another way, a difference in the effect entails a difference in the cause.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, with me, if I intend to like uh, play the piano, then I'm, you know, I'm bringing about a, a, the effect of playing the piano. Mm-hmm. If I intend to do something else, you know, like not play the piano, well, then I'm not going to bring about playing the piano. So, the mm-hmm. the difference in the effect is because of the difference in my intentions and my actions.
1: Exactly. Right. Right. There's something different okay. in you intrinsically. Uh, that grounds the difference in effects,
0: mm-hmm. right? Okay.
1: Now, the the point, my point, is this: the proponent of divine simplicity has to deny that this principle applies to God in order to preserve creaturely contingency. Right. God remains totally unchanged across all possible worlds, and yet his effect mm-hmm. is different because, with respect to divine causality, a difference in effect does not entail, does not require, a difference in the cause. Okay. You see what I'm saying? Okay. So this, yeah. this premise, I yeah. think, is implicit in your Theopolis argument because you say mm-hmm. God is identical to God's act of giving grace. That means right. that the effect of grace being received right, exists in all possible worlds because that act mm-hmm. is necessarily identical with God. Well, I'm going yeah. to say, okay, God's act of giving grace is identical to God if we understand that act or that phrase in the causal sense, because it's just a reference to God himself, that in virtue of which he produces his effect. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I'm going to deny that it entails that the effect of receiving grace exists in all possible worlds, because God's causality is not like that. There's no need for a difference in God in order for the effect that he produces to be different. God can remain unchanged across all possible worlds, and yet the effect that he produces is different. In any case, that's what I say that the doc- the proponent of divine simplicity has to hold in order to preserve creaturely right. contingency. However, mm-hmm. understood in the effectual sense, I do not have to grant that God is identical to God's act of giving grace. Because in the effectual sense, the reference is not to God, but to an, a state of affairs that exists insofar as it's produced by God. Mm-hmm. So God's act of giving grace in the effectual sense refers to Ryan, you know... Uh, having a, a a moment where he encounters Christ, he you know as a teenager he cries, he goes he goes up to the altar, right? He prays, tears flowing down his eyes. He stops smoking, he stops drinking, he stops talking with girls that do all those things, etc. Mm-hmm. So this this. God's act of giving grace to Ryan understood in the effectual sense just refers to that state of affairs of your life being changed as a result of God.
0: Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. But God is
1: obviously not identical to that because the reference isn't to God at all. It's a reference to something outside of God. Right, okay. So in the effectual sense, God is not identical to his actions. And in the causal sense, God is identical to his actions. But you need this further difference principle to show Mm -hmm. that the effect of God's actions is always going to be the same that God can't be unchanged across all possible worlds and yet produce different effects. You need this difference principle, as I call it.
0: Yeah. Okay, so I want to make sure I'm following again here. So I've got, you said, the like the causal sense of, of referring to God's acts and then the effectual sense of God's mm-hmm. acts. Right. Right. Uh, and so the modal collapse, it definitely does need extra premises to get the, well, actually to get the modal collapse, to get the effects part, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think it's one way to kind of build this in, you said, is, well, it seems like there's got to be a difference in God's intentions to bring about certain things. Uh, and there's this classical doctrine called the infallibility of God's omnipotence. So whatever God intends to bring about, it, it's going to bring about, because how could an omnipotent being fail to bring about what he intends to bring about? Right. Uh, and so you're, you're so you're going to want to say, okay, so we got to get, re- so that's like another premise, you know, so whatever God brings about, it's going to bring about. Well, but I want to say God's actions are the same across all possible worlds. How am I going to get this different effect? Well, I'm going to have to reject some premise like the difference uh, in God uh, brings about a difference in effect. Mm-hmm. Something, in this, something kind of like this? Okay. Right. Yeah, so I've got, I guess, okay, so one slight worry here is related to language here, I guess. So I've got this claim that God's act could refer to this causal sense or the effectual sense. Mm-hmm. I guess I find it kind of odd that I would ever want to say God's act refers to the effectual sense. Like, wouldn't I want to say that I have much better language to capture the effects, which would be the effects of God's action. Mm-hmm. Does, I don't know if there's that question. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I mean, I remember an example in Aquinas. Mm-hmm. Not that I understand Aquinas, not that anybody understands Aquinas. Sure. Uh, but I remember <laughs> yeah. I remember an example in Aquinas somewhere. I don't remember where exactly, where he distinguishes between two senses of the interpretation of a verb so for example let's say that the teacher mm. the master taught the student
0: oh right because in one sense it could be like yeah cause like i i the teacher's causing something the other sense is the student's learning something right exactly right yeah so yeah teacher, okay. the master yeah. taught
1: the student in one sense that refers to like some activity that the master does in order to produce mm-hmm. and it refers to like various you know operations and actualities of the master. But in another sense, it can refer to the fact that the, t- the the student learns from the master and the master can remain unchanged across possible worlds and still produce the effect of learning. So, for example, suppose in one possible world, the student observes the master doing something honorable, right? The master mm-hmm. doesn't know that he's there, but he observes the master doing something honorable then the student learns, right? He learns how to be honorable. He learns something. In another possible yeah. world, the master does exactly the same thing, but the student isn't there. So the effect can be different, even though the, the cause is the same or unchanged. And we can still talk about the student learning from the master, even though, right, there's no intention on the master's part to teach. The master is the same across possible worlds. It doesn't always produce the same effect. So I'm, I'm sort of doing the same thing, I'm like, you know, writ large. All of God's actions are like this. We can talk about God in himself, which remains unchanged Mm -hmm. across all possible worlds, or we can talk about the effects that God's actions produce, which differ from possible world to possible world.
0: Right. Okay. So, okay. So I think I understand the argument somewhat now. So this helps you get out of the modal collapse because you're going to say God's actions are the same across all possible worlds, but the effects are going to be different. Mm. Can you clarify a little bit how you get that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. When we say things like God is identical to God's act of creation or God is identical Mm -hmm. to God's act of giving mercy or God is identical to God's act of punishing sinners, whatever. Mm -hmm. I think what I think those phrases are meant in the causal sense. God is identical to that in virtue of which, you know, he produces the effect of the punishment of a sinner or the reception of grace or the creation of the world, etc. Mm hmm. Right, so God causes effects in virtue of himself, not in virtue of some accidental modification of his being like I do. So for instance, I can't just directly cause piano music to exist. I have to sit down and move my body around in order to play the piano. Right. God is not like that. God causes things in virtue of himself. He doesn't use mediators. There's just the direct connection mm-hmm. between himself and his to- totality of his being and the effect that he produces. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about God being identical to, him, to his various actions, I think we mean the causal sense. We do not mean the effectual sense. So we can talk about God's active creation, and by that we mean the contingent existence of things, right? Things existing contingently insofar as they are caused by God. That's the effectual sense. Or we can talk about God's Mm -hmm. giving grace. Uh, When God gave me grace, for example, the the story of my life when I was converted or whatever. Mm -hmm. Then we're referring to the effectual sense. We're referring to some state of affairs that God produces insofar as it's produced by God. So that's the effectual sense. God is not identical to his actions in the effectual sense, clearly, because God is not identical to a contingent state of affairs. Right. God is identical to his actions in the causal sense because God causes things in virtue of himself and not in virtue of anything from which he's distinct. Mm -hmm. Now, how is it that God can be totally unchanged across all possible worlds, as divine simplicity requires, without potentiality, and yet produce effects contingently?
0: Right, because this is the next question I wanted to ask. Yeah, this
1: this is the whole this is the essence of it. Um, I say that the doctor the proponent of the doctrine of divine simplicity, has to deny what I call the difference principle. The difference okay. principle says that a difference in effect presupposes a difference in the cause.
0: That seems pretty straightforward, yeah.
1: Right, this seems straightforward. It's totally plausible. It's totally reasonable. For example, if I turn on my car, right? If I try to turn on my car and it doesn't work. When yesterday it mm-hmm. did work, I assume that something must be different in the mechanism for, you know, igniting the engine. Right, and so on. yeah. So, there has to be something different because the effect is different. I turn the key and right. instead of my car turning on, it doesn't do anything. So that means something must be mm-hmm. different now. This is a totally reasonable principle. It's totally plausible. But if we're going to be proponents of the doctrine of divine simplicity and we're going to maintain that the world exists contingently, we have to deny it in the case of divine causality. Insofar as God is concerned, God directly produces an effect, and yet he doesn't do so necessarily. He can, re- he can remain exactly the same and a different effect be produced or no effect whatsoever. Okay. Now, there are some potential objections you might have to this view. So, for instance, one thought right. that came to my mind as I was thinking about this is, okay, why don't things just pop into being randomly all the time, right? Right. With no sense whatsoever, no connection to one another. Mm-hmm. My response to this argument is that, okay, in order to prevent that effect, or rather to prevent it, I mean, we see it doesn't happen, mm-hmm. in order to prevent that, or to, to make room for this observable fact, we should understand that the principal object of divine causality, or rather the proper object of divine causality, is not the individual being, but the whole possible world.
0: Uh, say that again.
1: God, first and foremost, creates an entire possible world, and not first and foremost an individual being, Right.
0: If I were to go with possible worlds, yeah. Yeah,
1: Yeah. but rather what he he creates first and foremost is an entire possible world. Mm -hmm. And that includes various individual beings and their relations to one another and their histories and so on. This is the principal object of divine causality. And that's how we can save the indeterminism of divine causality from sort of, you know, translating into just random beings popping into existence all the time for no reason whatsoever, you know human beings popping into existence on Saturn where they immediately die, you know, because there's no Mm -hmm. other... How do you save the order of creation without attributing, you know, to God a kind of an intention, a kind of a specific intention, right? To impose an order on things. The way that you do it, say I, is that the primary object of God's causality is a possible world, which of course is a self-contained and maximally coherent unit and not an individual being.
0: Okay, so the coherence is already built into a possible world. Right. Because otherwise it would be an impossible world. Right. Um, mm -hmm. I guess I'm not certain about this, though. So is there anything incoherent about the idea of a possible world containing things that just kind of randomly pop into existence at different points in
1: time? Is there anything incoherent about it?
0: Yeah. I'm just shooting from the hip here. I just I I hadn't thought about this
1: before. You know, it's hard for me to say.
0: I want to say it goes against the principle of sufficient reason.
1: All that I know, for instance, is that our world... I mean maybe there's like some weird stuff going on at the quantum level but at the macro level our world sure. is not like that. Right yeah. Right. So so in light of that how do I preserve the existence of a relatively coherent and intelligible world without just making it a matter of dumb luck that God just happens to produce things in the right order and in the right place at all the you know all the time. Right. The way that I save it from being dumb luck is to say God is God produces the entire possible world. Mm-hmm. The whole possible world is actually the object of his causality and not individual beings. Yeah. And presumably, a possible world that is just incoherent and unintelligible with things popping into existence and going out of existence all the time without like mm-hmm. maintaining proper causal relations, without having an appropriate history or whatever, maybe that's just right. not actually a possible world. But again, I can't argue for this necessarily. It's maybe it's just a consequence of my theory.
0: Yeah, maybe. So I guess there's a couple ways maybe to, to develop this. So, so one, you'd have to say that possible worlds are not constructed out of objects and times and, and this sort of stuff you're gonna to have to say I guess a possible worlds its own unique thing uh, that contains all this stuff yeah so you have to
1: yeah 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 do something like
0: that which you know whatever that's fine but a, a deeper claim though maybe you might have to build into the very nature of God I guess would be the claim that whatever would follow from the divine nature would just have to be coherent like by definition yeah which that shouldn't be too hard because most theists want to say you know, Whatever possible world God's going to create has to be a world that's better than, or is is more good than evil. Things like that. Mm -hmm. They already want to build on that, so you just have to build on slightly more things. Well, actually, wouldn't have to be like no no one wants to say God could build, uh, create an impossible world. So I guess you just have to kind of build that into the into the into the metaphysics here. Yeah, it's it's a kind,
1: it's a kind of an optimistic metaphysics that trades on the essential intelligibility of being. And yeah, certainly, Mm -hmm. certainly, I think that's that's true. That's a that's kind of the vision of God and of being that I think is implicit in what I'm saying
0: mm-hmm. okay so okay so you said there like might be some other worries you had so one was this this chaos theory I guess I just want to have like slight follow up on this so I, I, I get the idea you want to say whatever God creates is going to be a whole possible world an entire possible world it's mm-hmm. not going to be individuals but how do I get the worlds up and running in the first place because again if God's intentions or his acts is the same across all possible worlds how do I get these individual specific worlds popping up because it's not like God's intending that one or that one, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I guess, on this on this model, as, as I understand. Yeah.
1: yeah, this is a very good question. And in response to very good questions about the doctrine of divine simplicity, there perhaps is no greater strategy than to play a mystery card. So maybe that's what I'll sure. do. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, yeah. I don't know how it is. Yeah. So I incline in the direction of a kind of um, possibilism about being. So I okay. think that things that exist, some things have sort of merely possible being and some things have actual being. Mm -hmm. I think that there's God, right? And on the basis of divine omnipotence, right, from God, there emerges perhaps this sort of panoply of possible beings. Mm -hmm. And what happens when God creates is that one of them is actualized. Okay. And these possible beings, of course, are possible worlds that contain, you know, possible substances and various relations and so on. Mm -hmm. What happens is that one of them is actualized. I have no idea how. This doesn't happen in time, obviously, because God isn't within time.
0: Right, because if you're affirming simplicity, you're going to have timelessness as well. Right. Right.
1: I'm a very heavy-duty, sort of um, apophatic theological language kind of guy, so Mm -hmm. I don't want to, like, ascribe to God this process of deliberation or a choice to activate one world rather than the other or whatever. I don't say any of that. I just—I don't know how it works, but this is, Mm -hmm. you know— how I understand it insofar as I can understand it.
0: Okay. So I've got I guess one final worry that I wanna I wanna lay out here. Um okay. so, so I've got this response from you. Now now Christian theologians they typically affirm other doctrines like predestination and providence, and on a fairly traditional understanding of these doctrines, God intentionally acts to bring about a very specific timeline. Like for instance, a timeline that contains Jesus Christ suffering and dying on a cross. Mm-hmm. So, so I guess I'm not I'm not certain how this response of yours to the modal collapse argument I, I guess I'm not certain how it's consistent with something kind of like a somewhat traditional understanding of predestination and providence. So, how how might you kind of get out of this worry? Okay,
1: so I'll I'll try to identify where the inconsistency might lie, and then I'll try to sp- mm-hmm. perhaps a revised version of the doctrine of predestination or providence. Oh, okay, um, yeah. So great. maybe this is where the inconsistency li- inconsistency lies. The inconsistency lies in the facts. And the fact that my own view of divine simplicity doesn't allow me to say that God has certain contingent intentions with respect to the created order, right? Mm -hmm. He contingently intends this particular possible world be created, this particular, you know, this in particular be the life of Ryan or the life of Stephen. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have any like these particularized intentions, right, that have to do with this world and that explain why things go the way they do. Right I, I don't think any of that can be said about God, right I think the voct- I think the, di- the doctrine of divine simplicity imposes extremely rigorous and exigent limitations on theological language. Mm-hmm. We talked earlier about analogy and univocal predication oh, for example yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. so my inclination is to think that if we insist on analogical predications of God, then we're proposing an analogy, but we don't know what the analogy is. Oh, okay. You know what I'm saying? If we insist on univocal predication to God, then our only option is simply to make negations. God is not like this. God does not have a mind like I have a mind. God Mm -hmm. does not have thoughts like I have thoughts and so on. So if we adopt a univocal approach to theological language, we make negations. If we adopt an analogous, an analogical approach to theological predication, then we don't really know what we're saying. Right. So
0: in which case it doesn't sound like it's an analogy anymore. Right. Cuz right. if I don't know what I'm saying, then I sounds like I've just changed the conversation, I guess.
1: Right. So I I you know, I'm I'm very strict about theological language. I happen to mm-hmm. tend in the direction of a view that I find and, you know, Dionysius scholars can correct me if I'm mistaken, but a view that I find in Dionysius, namely that because of God's mysterious nature, Because God is just so utterly unlike anything that we encounter in the world, he's beyond our ability to talk to, and he's beyond our ability to understand. And that's why we have in Scripture sort of like divinely sanctioned modes of speech about God. Uh, There's a way of talking about God that Scripture gives us uh, that is useful, that directs us. It sort of like directs our steps towards God. It directs our life Mm -hmm. so that we can enter into communion with God. But whether or not it's literally true, in many cases it is not. And exactly how much metaphysical weight these forms of language have to bear it's not clear to me. In a lot of cases I'm inclined to say that they are useful ways of talking rather than like metaphys- metaphysically adequate descriptions of God's being. So with this clarification hmm. then about my approach to theological language, I will have to propose a kind of a revision of divine providence. So for me divine providence is not about God's, you know, contingently had intentions about this world. Right, okay. Like everything, I think according to the doctrine of divine simplicity, Theological language has to be interpreted through a causal lens. It has to be a matter of causality and metaphysics. So here's an idea that I have. Perhaps we can understand the doctrine of predestination and providence like this. Every possible world that God creates is sort of like an intrinsically teleological and directed at something. Every world sort of has a telos. Right, okay. And the way things happen in that world lead towards that telos. And so here we have a kind of a ontologizing perhaps of, of providence instead of providence lying in divine intention towards the world providence lies in the the nature of the possible world itself which god actualizes okay yeah and of course the nature of the possible oh, world itself yeah. you know comes from god right the intelligibility of the world is a reflection of god's sort of perhaps supreme you know super intelligibility or whatever but that's how that's how I would understand providence on a doctrine of divine simplicity, without ascribing intentions to God, without making like you know, without making theological affirmations about like God's inner mental states, which are impossible in divine simplicity. I would put mm-hmm. the providence at the level of being, at the level of the possible world. Every possible world has a direction, and the events within it, you know, lead in that direction.
0: Right. Okay. So this. Okay. I, I guess here's a way to kind of develop it a little bit, right? So most accounts of providence, what they want to say anyway, is that whatever God whatever world God creates, the goal is for creatures to draw closer to God and to be in a right relationship with God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what you could do is just kind of build that into the metaphysical story from the start and just say, right, that's just part of the nature of God is whatever beings God would happen to produce. Like their goal is just to be closer to God. Mm-hmm. And so you could kind of build that in. And so you don't have to give up anything like that part of the traditional doctor of providence. You're just having to give up the claim that God's intentionally selecting this particular timeline or that particular timeline or that particular world or this particular right. world right but the but you have the ultimate goal is always going to be union with God or something like that, mm-hmm. so you could already, yeah, you could build that into your model without having to say, well, I'm, not, I'm making some revisions to, to traditional doctrines of providence, but not not giving up all of it though right
1: yeah I mean mm-hmm. I, I I would also make this point it's very easy to fall into the trap of thinking that if i make certain denials about what god is like mm-hmm. then i'm basically like reducing god you know from a higher rung on the ontological ladder to a lower one okay. so if i if i don't ascribe intentions to god if i don't ascribe a certain psychology to god then i somehow depersonalize him i somehow turn him into a robot or like this you know inscrutable black box that just produces things right we you know it's it's hard to think about god without like trying to model him somehow without trying to right. f- apply some kind of metaphor to him so that we can get a Mm -hmm. grasp on what we're talking about when i deny that we can make univocal descriptions of mental life to god i don't mean for example that god is like submental or that he's subpersonal that he's like just this you know impersonal abstract object or whatever Mm -hmm. i'm only making a denial i'm not making a sort of a a replacement affirmation about what god is like
0: okay so you're not saying like well okay i wouldn't deny that god has intentions so therefore, I'm going to say God's a computer. You're, yeah, you're just right. not doing anything like that. N- no, right. no, I'm only okay. making
1: the denial, and I'm not making the replacement affirmation. And I wanna, I wanna right. fight against that tendency to say, okay, if God isn't, if God doesn't have intentions like we do, then he must be subpersonal, right? Mm-hmm. He must be like a, a spring or a fountain or whatever, right? He's something that's not even right. personal. Okay. Yeah. He could be. be yeah. He's beyond what we are. He's not less real than we are. He's more real than we are. Mm-hmm. But we don't know what that is. So we just have to, you know, be careful in in using language in ascribing action or intention or whatever to God, because we can put ourselves in all kind of theological conundra because of the language that we use and in, you know, implicit habits of meaning attribution that we have that we don't realize.
0: Okay. So I guess to kind of sum up the conversation then, so your way out of the modal collapse argument is to say, look, God just doesn't have intentions in the way that we do, but it's still the case. I can give some kind of story that at least gestures or explains a bit of how possible worlds are going to get up and running mm-hmm. and how, all these possible worlds are going to be oriented towards achieving this goal of union with God. Mm -hmm. And so I can have, I have to make some revisions to my, to my Christian theology, but not maybe not utterly radical revisions. So you've still got something that looks like it's firmly within the camp of Christian theology and still affirming divine simplicity.
1: I should hope so anyway. Yeah.
0: I hope so. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Otherwise we're just
1: both heretics and, and we don't understand Thomas Aquinas either.
0: And yeah, none of us understand Aquinas. So, you know, there we go. Uh, Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. This is really fascinating stuff. It's
1: giving me a lot more to think about. Thank you for having me. And there you have it,
0: another episode of the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes on listener questions and your theological obsessions.